0: If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, the epistle of 1 Peter chapter 1, as we continue in our series recently begun in this letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and this morning we'll look at verses 3 through 5. What is it that makes the perspective and the outlook of the true Christian most markedly different from that of someone who is not a Christian? There are many answers that might be given to that question. One answer, perhaps the best answer, would be the nature of Christian hope. The hope of the Christian, perhaps more than anything else, distinguishes the Christian perspective from that of the non-Christian perspective. Christians hope for heaven. They believe in life beyond the grave. They believe in the resurrection from the dead. They hope for a coming kingdom where sin, death, and sorrow will be no more. And in that coming kingdom, all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ are said to inherit paradise forever with the Lord this is the inheritance of every true Christian. Christians possess the hope of final salvation, the hope of eternity with the Lord. And if these ideas do not in some sense control and shape the Christian's perspective, worldview, outlook, and his very life, he is not a Christian after the biblical sense. Christian hope impacts every aspect of our lives. It changes the way we look at our time, changes the way we look at our money, our relationships, our marriages, our children, our jobs, everything, because we recognize this life is fleeting, it will soon pass away, and we recognize we will live ultimately for eternity. We deny sin and self now for eternal pleasures and joys then. The Bible gives no small amount of attention to the subject of Christian hope. Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, the New Testament writers address this subject again and again. Repeatedly, Christians are called to set their minds on the hope of eternal life, of heaven, and of the resurrection, and this hope is meant to shape practically all of Christian life and experience. A Christian hope is obviously the theme of our text this morning, and in some ways it could be said to be the theme of the entire book of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to elect exiles dispersed throughout Asia Minor, and he wants to set Christian hope before their minds as the motivating factor, as the controlling thought that shapes their entire lives, their outlooks, their perspectives on this world and the world to come. So this will be our theme this morning. I'd like to open up these verses under four main headings. First of all, we'll consider the cause of Christian hope. Secondly, the character of Christian hope. In the third place, the content of Christian hope. And finally, the keeper of Christian hope. The cause, the character, the content, the keeper. Consider with me first the cause of Christian hope. Please look again at Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The, The text could not be more plain, right? The cause of Christian hope is said to be God himself who brings about new birth. He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. We are born again to a living hope and our salvation, our regeneration, our new birth, our conversion has its origin, its foundation, its cause in God Himself. The reason you are saved today, if you are a Christian, a child of God, the cause of your new birth resides in God Himself, particularly, particularly in this text, in God in His great mercy. Our new birth, our salvation, has its foundations, its origins, its cause in an attribute of God. Peter, when he explains God causing us to be born again, emphasizes mercy. It wasn't principally a reflex of justice, a reflex of holiness. This was a reflex of divine mercy and grace. Now, children, what is mercy? If, if, if we talk about someone having mercy on another. Well, well, mercy, it's somewhat like grace, which we've said before is the unearned favor of God. Mercy is is compassion and kindness shown toward another whom it would be within your right to inflict punishment. So so mercy is given usually in the face of a wrong that's been done against somebody. But rather than giving someone their just deserts, you express mercy, you show mercy toward that individual, you show kindness and compassion that's unearned, and in fact, it's probably in spite of what you have earned, namely just punishment and just condemnation. So God says, or Peter says of God, that He causes us to be born again according to His mercy, and this mercy is said to be His great mercy. Now why does Peter use that adjective, great, there? It is because the kind of mercy that is shown by a perfect and holy God who is rightly offended at and by our sin, that kind of mercy shown by such a God to a pitiful, vile, rebellious sinner like each one of us is in this room can only be described as great. The cause of new birth is God in His great mercy. Salvation, new birth, new life comes from God. And if this is the case, There's no cause for boasting in our salvation, no cause for boasting in our new birth. If our new birth, our salvation is the consequence of God moving toward us in mercy, if it's caused by Him, I don't have any room to boast. All of us here have been born, right? If you're here a lot, you've been born. Now, do we take credit for our birth? No, right? We had no say-so in that decision. We had no say-so in our conception, we had no say-so in our birth, none of us could even remember the day of our birth, so, so it would be sort of senseless, right, to boast in our natural birth. Well, similarly, there's no place for boasting in our regeneration, our new birth. We were utterly passive in our new birth. The new birth was accomplished for us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's not to say we're altogether passive in the exercise of faith or repentance. But the idea is this, God causes us to be born again, He transforms us by His grace and His grace alone even when we wanted to have nothing to do with Him and we would have never chosen Him. He causes us to be born again and gives us the gifts of faith and repentance which we then exercise to turn from sin and to believe on Him. But these are gifts that God gives. Repentance and faith don't have their origin in our nature. You're not a Christian because you decided better than your neighbor. If you are a Christian today, you are a Christian because God has caused you to be born again in His great mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are altogether passive in the new birth. And the new birth itself, it's worth saying, regeneration can be to us imperceptible in the moment of its occurrence. And so, so many of us might say, I actually don't know when I was born again. I, I can't give you the day or the hour. I, I, don't, I don't know when I was converted, when the new birth happened. And sometimes people will get a little sloppy, and they'll say something like, I don't, I don't know how I got saved. But we'll, if we don't know how we got saved, we just need to read our Bibles more, because the Bible tells us how we got saved. I was saved in February of 2001, I think, yes, February 2001. In that moment when I came to Christ, all I knew was that I was a vile sinner in need of His grace, and I wanted the Lord Jesus to save me and to make me right with God. I had no notions of divine election. I had a very infantile understanding of what new birth was. I did not properly understand all the things that God had done to bring me to that moment of expressing personal faith in Jesus Christ. See, God was doing all these things that that I wasn't privy to, and many of you can feel this way as well. You only learned later all that God was doing to cause you to be born again, all He was doing to predestine you before the foundations of the world and to draw you to His Son, and you can see what was going on in your narrative even though you wouldn't be cognizant of it or conscious of it at the time. We, we should not interpret the Bible through the lens of our experience, but our experience through the lens of the Bible. We read the Bible to tell us what happened to us. What, what what occurred in eternity past? What occurred at the cross? What occurred in the moments leading up to my repentance and faith? What was God doing? And here we're told God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of His Son. Some Christians still struggle. Guys, we good? Check, 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 check. Feel free, uh, Joseph, if one of you guys want to run a handheld up, that would. Oh, there we go. Okay. If it goes out again, feel free to run and give me a, a handheld mic. Some Christians struggle still uh, as they're contemplating and understanding what new birth is. Some Christians struggle still to know whether or not they've been born again at all. So some of you are here and you have that question Have I really been born again? And lots of authentic Christians struggle with this question has this happened to me? When I read the descriptions of what new birth actually entails and what it is, have I been born from above? And, 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 and some of you young people are probably wondering this. I know because I've talked to a few of you. You're, am I a Christian? Have I been born again? Am, am I truly a child of God? Have these things described in the Bible, have they occurred in my heart and in my life? And, and often the mechanism or the method by which people seek to determine whether or not they have been born again is they begin to take inventory of their past experiences, and they try to pinpoint a particular date or a particular emotional experience or a particular sermon or song or night or something like that where, where I felt emotionally overwhelmed, and that must have been the moment when I was born again. I don't encourage that method. How do you know? Right now, that you are alive? If I put that question to you, prove to me, prove to me that you're alive right now. Which of us would go, you know, I think I left my birth certificate at home, I think it's in the attic, let, let me run back and check. Let me see, I'll, I'll try to produce the certificate. Which of us would do that? No, you just. Hello? I'm breathing. I'm here. Woo-hoo. Look at me. You just breathe, right? That that sort of makes the argument, right? Or you could take your pulse and put a hand on the heartbeat, right? How do you know that you are born again and are a child of God? I love God. I trust Him. I treasure Christ. I'm clinging to Him for my salvation. I hate my sin. I want the Lord. In other words, the reflexes of life are there, I'm, I'm, I'm breathing the breath of faith. You know that you're a child of God and that you've been born again because the effects of new birth are there, because you love the Lord Jesus and you hate your sin and you want to be with Him in paradise forever, and you're seeking to follow Him as a disciple. Jesus said in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it came from and where it's going, right? The actual moment of new birth may be imperceptible, but the effects are not. The effects are love for God, true faith in Jesus Christ, hatred of sin, love for the people of God, love for God's Word. If if those signs of life are present in you, then you have been born again of God's Spirit. God has caused you to be born again. But now, what did this mercy do To bring about new birth. It's an attribute of God. God has caused us to be born again through His mercy, but what did mercy do? How did it come to expression? Look at the text again. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Cause God and His mercy means through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How did God's mercy come to expression? What course did God's mercy take? What means was employed to actually accomplish the object of God's mercy? The means was, of course, the gospel itself. gods sending of His own Son into the world who died for us and was raised for our justification, was raised to give us new life in Him. So what is the cause of Christian hope? What brought Christian hope into being? A merciful God who sent His only Son to die and rise for us so that we could be born again. Our new birth has its cause, has its foundation in God and God alone. Now consider with me, secondly, that's the cause of Christian hope. Consider with me, secondly, the character of Christian hope. The character of Christian hope is the adjectives that are used to describe it. third point is going to be the content. That's that's the nouns that are used to describe it, the character would be the adjectives that are used. By the way, I know that my outlines can be somewhat technical and somewhat tedious. I have them because I don't know any other way to preach, but also because I think it's very important that Bible readers understand the grammar of passages. We have to understand the words and how they're connected and what their meanings are so that we can understand what God is telling us. Life is found in the grammar of the Bible, and people go to hell because of bad grammar. Because they don't understand how these words relate and what they mean. So that's why I pursue this arduous method of preaching, okay? The character of Krishna. What adjectives are used to describe this hope? Please look again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's the first adjective. We'll look at that in a second. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, which I'm going to argue in a second, that's the content of our hope, that's the noun that's used, and how is that described? As imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So, two subpoints here under the character of Christian hope. It's living hope, and it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. First of all, it's a living hope, that is to say it's not dead, it's not a dead hope, it's not a vain hope. It's alive. I had lots of hope three months ago that the New York Mets would be in the playoffs. That hope died like a dog yesterday. It's not going to happen. It's a dead hope. There's no hope of that. Well, this hope is said to be a living hope. It's alive. It's going to happen. It's sure. It's a living hope. There was a time when we, like the Gentiles described in Ephesians 2 verse 12, were without hope and without God in the world." These Gentiles to whom Peter is writing were without hope and without God in the world, but something's changed. God has caused them to be born again to a living hope. And why is it described as, as, as living? Well, first of all, it's, it's born, and born things live, right? We've been born again to a living, the hope's alive, right, we've been born, but secondly, It's said to be living because it is born through in connection with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which I understand to mean that in some sense, our fates are tied with His, because He lives, the hope is living, because He has risen, we will rise. Ephesians 2, right, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were… Uh, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working work, the sons of disobedience. But Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and seated us in heavenly places with Him. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together with Him. Through our union with Christ, our fates are tied to His. Which means your living hope, your resurrection, depends on Jesus' heartbeat. That Jesus is still alive is the grounds for your hope that you will have everlasting life. How do you know that you're going to rise from the dead? The answer is because Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus isn't alive, if the tomb is not empty, if His heart is not beating, this is all a big sham. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. We are all wasting our time coming here this morning. You might as well have been at brunch or caught the pregame or gone shopping or something like that. All the the money invested in Christian endeavors, the building of this building, the sending of missionaries, it's just all so pointless. That's why when people say to you, well, you know, Jesus was a very good man. He said a lot of great things, but I don't believe He's Lord. that's That's a... A horrendous statement. People are dying for Jesus all around the world because they believe they're going to rise from the dead and they're going to inherit heaven. What kind of monster would propound that sort of a lie and dupe people into that kind of thing? It all depends on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And if He is alive, we too will rise, and that's where Paul goes because he says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That, that language is used in Handel's Messiah. It's used a lot around Christmas time and Easter as well. Christ is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? It means he's the first one who rose, and there's lots more coming. He's, he's the first bit of the harvest. He has risen, and because he has risen, we too will rise, but Paul will say, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. and then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Our hope has a heartbeat because Jesus has a heartbeat. And what is the effect a living hope is to have on people? Well, it energizes them. It gives them life. It, it, it vivifies them. It, it, it causes them to persevere by faith. The living hope is a life-giving hope. If you have a living hope, well, then, then you have the courage The grace, the energy to persevere and to follow hard after Christ. You can imagine these Christians scattered in all these different places and all the things that were so difficult and challenging and hard in their lives. They needed a living hope, a hope that was alive, a hope that wasn't a vain wish. They needed a living hope. But secondly, it's said to be a hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. See, in verse 4, the hope is then called an inheritance. You've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our hope doesn't perish like everything else in the world. It's not defiled, it's not mixed with anything impure, anything unholy. It's perfectly clean, it's undefiled, unspoiled, and it never fades. The shine never wears off, rather it gets brighter and brighter as we approach that hope. Now, now where did Peter, the apostle, Peter the disciple, where did he learn to talk like this? Our inheritance, our hope is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. I wonder where in his history would he, would he have learned to talk about Christian hope like this? Perhaps the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Excuse me, treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure will be, there your heart will be also. Or maybe it was by the seashore, after Jesus had gone across the sea after feeding the 5,000. In John 6, what does Jesus say to the crowds there? Peter would have heard this Do not labor for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to all those who asked. He got this from the Lord, and he knows, just like every Christian ought to know, that the Christian message does not teach that we're to give up everything, be miserable for the rest of our lives, and then die and then be bored for all eternity. Now, the Christian message says, trade your worthless treasure, trade this pile of crud for lasting treasure. Treasure that doesn't perish, treasure that doesn't doesn't spoil, treasure that doesn't fade. Do Do you want to know how to have treasure that no one can take away from you? Treasure that can ensure eternal, lasting pleasure and joy forever and ever. This is what the gospel offers. And I want to especially bring this word to the young people here. We talk a lot about self denial and mortifying sin and the need to take up our cross and follow hard after Christ. The Christian life is not an easy life. But we don't do that because it's a good thing to have a stiff upper lip and to forego pleasures and to live like monks because that's just really good for your character. It is good for your character. But we do it because we have been offered greater pleasure, greater joy greater happiness in Jesus Christ. I'm trading in my sin for the pleasures that are at God's right hand forevermore. I'm trading in these treasures that are perishable and that fade and that get defiled. I'm trading those in for the treasure that I can have in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. No one can take it away from me. I have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading." I'm not satisfied with food that perishes. I don't want that. I need food that endures to everlasting life. That's the diet I want to have. I am holding out for the eternal pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Friends, the stock market goes up and it goes down. Land can be taken away. Beauty is fleeting. Friends will fail you. And even if you get to enjoy all these things, you'll only get them for 70 or 80 years, and then you'll die and meet your Maker. What will it profit a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to gain this whole world and suffer the loss of his or her soul? As, as someone said, you can't attach a U-Haul to a hearse. You ever heard that? You can't take your possessions and your friends and money and sex and praise and things and cars and clothes. You can't take that into heaven with you. In 500 years, everything you have right now And everyone you know will make up a landfill somewhere. We need something that doesn't perish, and Jesus offers that to us in Him. He offers us Christian hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What we need is what the Lord gives us, what Jesus gives. Christian hope, Peter says, is living, it's alive through Jesus and it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the character of Christian hope. That's what it's like. That's the adjectives that are used to describe it. So, we see in the cause of Christian hope, that's God Himself who causes us to be born again through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The character of Christian hope, living, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Now, the content of Christian hope. What is Christian hope, and what is it that we're hoping for Again, verse three: According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, verse four, he tells us more about what that hope is—to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The hope is centered, apparently, on the inheritance. Now, if you know the Old Testament well, and if you were with us last week, you know in these opening verses especially, but really all throughout the book, they're kind of Jewish overtones to everything Peter's saying. So, he refers to these Christians, and this would apply to us as well, he refers to them as elect exiles of the dispersion. That's a very Jewish way to talk to like the Israelites under the old covenant. They often thought of themselves as being elect of God and being chosen of God from among the nations. They often had reason to think of themselves as exiles because at many points in their history they were exiles, and at a number of points they were dispersed, elect exiles of the dispersion. And Peter's saying all Christians are like that. We're all elect exiles of the dispersion. And, and, and we saw also at the end of verse 2, Paul uses this phrase, he says that we've been chosen for obedience and for the sprinkling with blood. And we saw last time that that was was a little hurried. I hope you've had occasion to read Exodus 24, but that's the covenant ratification ceremony there in Exodus 24. Moses is with the Israelite people before the mountain, and they say, we will serve the Lord, we'll obey the Lord, we're going to follow Yahweh. And what does Moses do? He sprinkles the blood of a bull on them. That same sort of picture is said to be applied to us now. Jewish overtones, right? Similarly, this word has a long and rich Jewish history in the Old Testament, the Israelites thought always about this inheritance they would have. They thought about it in the near term, for example, the inheritance of land, the inheritance of blessing, the inheritance of a seed. They looked to those things. The Lord has an inheritance for His people. But believing Israelites, those who truly understood the promise, appreciated that these things were only a type of the greater inheritance. Yes, we have the promised land, but at the end of the day, we're looking for something much more, far greater than the land of Palestine. There's there's a greater country that's ahead. We're looking for something more than the immediate satisfaction of these promises. And last time, we looked briefly at Hebrews 11. I want to draw your attention to that passage again, in verses 13 through 16 in particular. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you'd like. Hebrews 11 is a passage many Christians refer to as the hall of faith. It tells the story of Old Testament saints Uh, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rahab, these Old Testament saints who had faith in God, looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. Well, we know that God fulfilled in the short term some promises, right? The Israelites entered the promised land. Abraham had land that he was promised, and yet we learn in Hebrews 11 that Abraham was not satisfied with that land. He looked ahead to a greater promise, a greater inheritance, that this inheritance extended beyond the borders of the promised land. And so, we read Hebrews 11 in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but they did receive some things, right? But their perspective was the promise has not been fully fulfilled. They haven't received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, like, distant into the future, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, call themselves strangers and exiles, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. You could have gone back to the land you came from. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. In other words, the Old Testament saints looked ahead to this inheritance of a city, of the new heavens and the new earth, of a homeland, of a country, a city whose builder and maker is God. They wanted so much more than the borders of Palestine. They were looking ahead to this greater inheritance, and I contend it's the same inheritance that we're looking for. Our inheritance is the new heavens and the new earth. All those who are in Christ, who have been born again, who are the children of God, we will inherit paradise forever with the Lord. Our living hope is centered on inheritance. This dwelling place, this city that God has built, the new Jerusalem that will come out of heaven where sorrow, sin, and death are no more and Christ is there shining like the sun in all His beauty and glory and majesty. We will have heaven with Him." And now let's be clear about something, okay? People talk about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You know what that is? That, that's, that's when some sort of fakeo preacher promises that if you sign a card or pray a prayer or something like that or give your life to Jesus, God will fix your circumstances, and He'll give you rims on your car, and He'll give you a full pantry, and and, and all these other things. And you'll have wealth, you'll have prosperity, you won't get cancer, you won't have miscarriages, none of that stuff. Okay, that has nothing to do with anything that's in the Bible at all. That's just a total lie, and it sadly is being passed all over the world right now. We need to combat that, that sort of gospel. But make no mistake the gospel does promise to us health, wealth and prosperity. Health as in like eternal life. Wealth as in treasures forevermore at God's right hand. Prosperity, we're going to be like trees planted by rivers of water. We're meant to flourish and prosper as God intended in the new heavens and new earth. But we must get this right. It's not like we have those gifts as standalone gifts separate from the Lord. We have them in and by and through and with Him." What makes heaven so wonderful? It's not that, that, that it's like an endless holiday at the beach and there's great golf courses there and resorts and things like that. We'll probably have all that kind of stuff, but we'll have it with Jesus. One of the most wonderful statements of what our inheritance is as the children of God comes in the most unlikely of places. It comes from the lips of Jesus, that's not surprising, but it comes from the lips of Jesus from the cross. To the thief on his right hand, this day you will be with me in paradise. Is there anything better than that? To be with the Lord in paradise, that's the inheritance. That's the promise, a place called paradise with my Jesus. That is the inheritance of every Christian. It's expressed in more vivid terms. In Revelation chapter 7, a text we looked at a few months ago, there in verse 15 we read, this is about what what we look forward to. This is our living hope. Therefore, we will be before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter us with His presence. We will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun will not strike us, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. And He will guide us to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That is our living hope. The inheritance that God will give us forever in paradise with Him. And this hope, unlike everything else in this world, can't be taken away from you. This hope doesn't fade. It doesn't perish. It is unmixed with anything impure or unclean. It endures forever. For these elect exiles, and for elect exiles here, Peter is saying the day is coming when you will no longer be exiles, but like Abraham, you'll be home. You'll be in that green country. You'll be in that homeland, that city whose builder and maker is God. This is the content of Christian hope, and it belongs to all those who have been born again, repented of sin, and put their faith in Jesus Christ. You appreciate these Christians in their situation, right? Like they're suffering bad. You read First Peter, they're, they're in dire straits. Some of them are contemplating walking away from the faith. They're being threatened, intimidated, maligned, harassed in all kinds of ways. You notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, they're there, buck up, it'll get better. He doesn't say, well, your circumstances are likely to change. He doesn't say, well, will you just, just hold on a little bit longer, Your marriages are all going to be perfect. Your children aren't going to rebel and grieve your heart. People are not going to hurt you and offend you. You're not going to be ostracized. Things will get better. Just have faith." That's not what He says. He says, set your mind on the inheritance. Set your mind on the world to come. You have a living hope, therefore persevere. Don't act like something strange is happening to you when trial comes. That's quite normal. That's to be expected. But set your minds on the hope to come and let that give you life for the present. Let that be the means by which you persevere and hang on and follow hard after Christ and slay your sin and seek to love your neighbor and your spouse and your children and to carry on in the workplace that doesn't value your contribution and and, and carry on with sickness and disease because you know you have an inheritance in Jesus Christ that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Those who suffer badly need to have a living hope. They need to have this continually before their minds and that's why Peter draws their attention to this. My time is nearly gone. Consider with me, fourthly and finally, the keeper of Christian hope. The cause of Christian hope is God. The character of Christian hope, it's living, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The content of Christian hope is this grand inheritance, paradise forever with the Lord, now the keeper of Christian hope. I know that keeper doesn't begin with a C but phonetically, that's what I'm going for there, the keeper of Christian hope. All right, one more time, look at the text with me. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, you might say, "Great, I have this hope. Sounds wonderful. Sounds dazzling. Sounds spectacular." But but what if I could lose it? In other words, yes, this inheritance is so awesome and so spectacular. But what is keeping me from losing it, from blowing it, from making shipwreck of my faith through any of the ten thousand stupid decisions and actions that I commit? We can and week out, what good is this hope to me if it can finally be lost? What is actually keeping me from losing my inheritance? And Peter's answer is simply God's power. What is coming between you and the shipwreck of your faith is said to be the power of God. So here's me, sinful, prone to wander, failing, futile, selfish, weak, fragile, sinful me. And and here is my inheritance, perfect paradise forever with the Lamb. And here's the problem between sinful me and my inheritance is, is all of this, like sin and Satan and death and suffering and the world and trial? How am I going to get from here to my inheritance? What's going to see me through all of that to my inheritance? And the answer is God's power. What will get you from here to here? What will get you through the storms and tempests of this life? Peter says it will be the power of God who is keeping you Verse 5 teaches us you can't lose this inheritance because you are being guarded for it so that you can actually reach it and have it and enjoy it. You're being kept for it. You might hear a, a bride-to-be say, I want to keep myself for my spouse. Well, the, the, the thought is that one day she will enjoy her spouse, but she's keeping herself. We are kept for our spouse. Inheritance. And notice, my inheritance is kept for me as I am kept for it. And all of this, keeping and guarding of the inheritance and escorting and guarding me to the inheritance, all of this is said to be affected by duname theu, the power, the ability of God duname thel some of you children kids are very smart and you're studying like greek and latin and spanish and you know all these languages and all this kind of stuff and and you guys go to bed at night you're like sum est as sumus estis sunt you know you know all the the parsings and all that kind of stuff you guys are going to run the country you know what derivatives are you know that pretty much all english language comes pretty much from greek and latin our language is derived from these languages, and that's why maybe your parents want you to study Greek and Latin. For what it's worth, if you have the choice between one, you should study Greek, but that's neither here nor there, just an obnoxious uh, hobby horse. But you study Greek and Latin, right? And, and, and if you study those languages, you learn how our language is derived from that language. So you have a word in, in Greek like theos, theos, which means God what English word is derived from the word theos? Like theology, the study of God. You see that? Or I think the Latin word is deus for God, right? Deus means God. So, what English word is derived from that? A deity. What's a deity? A deity is a God. That's, that's how it works. Okay, so, so we are kept, a sinner is kept all the way to heaven, through dunamé theu, the power of God. What English word could we get from the Greek word dunamis? And the answer is we get our English word dynamite. Now, kids, what's dynamite? Dynamite's powerful, right? I know you guys don't really watch uh, the old Bugs Bunny cartoons. Dynamite, I feel like, was featured a lot in those cartoons. (laughs) Cartoons today are more tame. But but what do you do with dynamite? Here's, Here's a big dam, and you have to Have to blow it up for some reason? What are you going to do to blow it up? You can't do it with like a hammer or something like that or a shovel. You get some sticks of dynamite and you shove it down at the foot of the dam and then you light the dynamite. You get way far away and the dynamite explodes because there's this raw power in dynamite, this explosive power. The dam has exploded wide open. Dynamite is powerful. Well, that's our English word. We're getting it from the Greek word dunamis. Paul here say, or "Excuse me." Peter says, "Here we are kept by the, the, raw power, the ability of God, the power of God. We can do big things, great things. The power of God. It's the same word that's used in that famous passage in June, Jude, the end of Jude. Now to him who is, dunamis, him who is able, powerful to keep you, present you blameless before." his presence with great joy. He is able to keep you. He's powerful to keep you. Now why, if you're talking about this keeping and protecting and guarding of a sinner for heaven, why is power emphasized? Why is God's power emphasized? Because to keep a wandering sheep, a selfish, self-centered, prone to wander, sinner like we all are, it takes power. With man this is impossible, but with God it's possible. Some of you are in really hard situations, and you're very aware of your own vulnerability, and some of you are afraid that if if, if I have to continue for another year in this, or ten years in this, or thirty years in this, I'm not going to make it. Like people have that anxiety. Lots of Christians have that anxiety. I'm with you. I, I feel my vulnerability every day. And I can assure you if 1 Peter 1.5 were not true, I would go to hell. I have no questions about that. If this is on me and my ability to to keep on keeping on, I'm not going to make it. Like, I pillow my head at night on 1 Peter 1.5 that God is keeping me, God is protecting me, God is watching me, and my inheritance is kept for me and I am kept for it. In the doctrine of of the perseverance of the saints, better referred to as the preservation of the saints, in that doctrine is truly spiritual sanity, psychological stability, emotional stability. How do you know? I've I've asked this question ten times or so, I'm sure. How do you know though, Christian, that you're going to wake up tomorrow with faith? How do you know that 10 years from now, you're going to be following the Lord Jesus? Well, let me show you. I I signed this in my Bible five years ago. Well, my mom told me that when I was four years old, I prayed a prayer. Well, I'll just, that's what I do. I just sort of keep going to church, and I'm sure I'll be doing that 10 years from now. You need a stronger foundation than that. You need the supernatural dunamis of God, the power of God, because it is only the power of God that can keep us. You will wake up, if you are a child of God, you will be a Christian tomorrow morning because God is doing 10 million things that you can't see to keep you alive in Him, to keep you persevering and pressing on and following hard after Jesus. There's more I wanted to say on this verse, I'll just say this very briefly. What, what should this produce in us? Should the doctrine of the preservation of the saints make us passive? Listen, I believe in sovereign election, effectual calling, the perseverance of the saints. Any notion of eternal security that makes me passive or less vigilant or not alert in exerting effort to follow after Christ is not a doctrine that's taught in the Bible. You'll notice in the text, how is it that we are kept? Verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. In other words, you are being kept by God, and the instrument by which He keeps us is faith. Faith that He gives and we exercise. And what does the exercise of faith look like? It looks like works. As Paul says, faith working through love, Galatians 5, 6. Or as James says, faith without works is dead, right? I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, does that mean we're saved by works? No, not at all. God causes us to be born again. He gives us the gift of faith. And what does faith do? The faith He gives works. And so we're working, we're striving, we're exerting energy But we know that that energy, that work, that that sweat that flows from the faith that God Himself gives. Thus, we are saved through faith. It's not the result of works. Faith works, of course. We weren't saved because of the works. We're saved by the faith that God supplies, and then we work. We exert effort. We follow hard after Christ. And we, we know, though, but all that working, all that striving, all that effort to follow after Christ, the getting up early, getting together with brothers and sisters, and coming to church, and seeking to mortify our sins and hold fast to Christ, that work is the product of the faith that God supplies, and thus salvation can be said to be all of grace through faith. The cause of Christian hope, the character of Christian hope, the content of Christian hope the keeper of Christian hope. Christian hope, brothers and sisters, is meant to give us perspective on everything in our lives, our bad days, our good days, our money, our time, our relationships. The applications just sort of spiral on and on and on and on. It gives us perspective on everything in our lives. And so I don't have time to make applications, but you make the applications. If this is my inheritance, if this is what it's really like, what about my life needs to change? What about my outlook and my perspective needs to change? Karl Marx, you know that name? A lot of people talking about Marxism nowadays. Karl Marx famously said that religion is the opium of the masses, or the opium of the people. Opium is a drug. And his larger point was that Religion and in his context, it was especially Christianity, but religion is is, is like a drug that's given to poor and oppressed and afflicted and disenfranchised people to sedate them and keep them quiet and to hold them back from pursuing the sort of bloody revolution that Marx was advocating for. Karl Marx viewed the world as, as being made up of oppressed classes and oppressor classes. Everything was about class conflict. That is how we read history. That's how the world is defined. And Karl Marx says, you know, religion really only emerged, only exists to drug the poor and to drug the oppressed and to sort of dazzle them with pie-in-the-sky religion so that they'll shut up, they'll keep quiet, and they won't revolt against the bourgeoisie, the reigning class. And this is how Karl Marx read history. So, so religion is just, your life's hard, things are bad, well, hey, look, Heaven's coming, so you could hope for that. No need to try to improve your life circumstances here. And then the oppressor class can just sort of maintain all the power. That's how Karl Marx saw the world. What hope did Karl Marx ever offer anybody? Karl Marx sowed the seeds for bitter, divisive class conflict that has led to the bloodshed of millions upon millions of people. He didn't have an alternative. There's no hope that he was propounding for actual reconciliation and human flourishing and any sort of paradise or utopia, nothing but an endless cycle of bitter class conflict in which religion is just a crutch to get us through the day. Well, what do we say to that? What would Peter say to that? That would be the case if this is not true. And so it all depends on whether or not Jesus' heart is beating now. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Do we have grounds for hope? Is this just sort of pie-in-the-sky fantasy? to drug us as we try to deal with our bad days and with our problems. Peter says no. The Word of God says no. The Messiah walked out of the tomb, and He lives, and because He lives, we have hope, a living hope that in our flesh we will see God. We will not promote among us any notion of heaven that is some sort of pie-in-the-sky crutch to help us with our bad days. And, and, And those here who are not Christians, who are evaluating whether or not they're going to follow Christ and embrace this Christian hope, this is the question you need to be asking yourself. Not does this sound great, but is it true? Is Jesus alive today? Do I believe that I will appear before God and answer to Him? Do I believe that I am a sinner in need of the grace of God and that I will stand before him and give an account for my life? Do I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he did die and that he did rise from the dead, and that he can bear my soul to God and see, see me safely through all the trials of this life? You see, it all depends on the truth of these statements. It depends on the resurrection. This is not a vain hope because Jesus is alive because he did rise from the dead, because there is an empty tomb in the Middle East. This is based on history. It's based on blood and flesh reality. That is the grounds for our hope. Because he lives, we can know that we too will live. Unto the grave what will we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. And What reward will heaven bring? everlasting life with Him. Then we will rise to meet the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Let's pray together. Lord, we have come to you because we are sick of the food that perishes. We don't want it. We need food that endures to eternal life. We have come to you because we have found our treasures in this life to be wanting. They perish, they spoil, they fade. We need better treasure. We need Jesus Christ. We need salvation in him and the inheritance that he brings. Lord, we pray that we would set our minds more and more on the hope that is ours in him. We would be motivated that we would persevere by the reward that heaven will bring, that we would find life-giving power in the hope of resurrection life for all eternity. Lord, we thank you for every initiative of grace that has caused us to be born again, that has brought us into the faith, and every initiative that you are undertaking to keep us, how we would have fallen, how we would have failed to the ruin of our souls if you were not guarding and protecting us. Keep your promise, we pray. See us to the end. Keep us for heaven and keep heaven for us. We pray that lost souls here who are without hope and without God in the world. would be blessed of you to enter into this hope now, to see through the lies and the perishing things of this passing world and find eternal life in Jesus Christ through the new birth, through repentance and faith. Do what you alone can do. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.